Welcome to our special series, Tales from the Trail. A number of episodes that we've recorded as we're on the road around the western states for our winter clinic tour. We're sitting down with makers, craftsmen, tax store or western store owners, and ranchers as well, horsemen, to visit, to catch up, to hear their stories. And we thought it'd be interesting to share these as a special series on our podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoy. Very good, guys. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Um, super excited to sit down with Jeff Mundell here in California. And uh, I've followed Jeff and his adventures here for quite a few years and, and uh, pretty excited to hear more about his, his story and what they're doing here at the Gavilon Ranch. So, Jeff, thank you for sitting down with me today and, and taking the time to visit with me and my family. You bet. Yeah, you I bet. really appreciate it. You got a great family. Yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, we just got back from a little tour of the place, and and you showed us the view out towards Monterey Bay. Yeah, incredible. It was a good day for country. it. Yeah, beautiful. It's been raining up here a bunch, so this was a good day to get a get some good sunshine. Absolutely, the sunshine yeah. is awesome. We've been we've been getting hosed on in California and Oregon for the last few weeks, so the sunshine is nice. Yeah. Um, I guess to start out with, um, did you grow up ranching, cowboying? Where did, what's, what's your story? No, I actually, uh, my dad, my stepdad was, um, uh, he sold gloves when him and my mom got together, like safety gloves and work gloves. And my mom was going to school to be a teacher and she and my stepdad got together and we moved from Red Bluff where I had lived in an apartment with my mom and my brother, and they got together and we moved north to Sacramento. Okay. And we moved to a house right across the road from Mather Air Force Base, a little subdivision in Rancho Cordova. And uh, I got into skateboarding and, you know, just <laughs> learning about city living. Red Bluff was, was a pretty small town, but uh, sure. Sacramento was a big jump, so... A lot more going on, and then um, my stepdad had an uncle, Craig Brophy, who was a mailman in Red Bluff, and we went there for a visit, and he was into mules, and I didn't know anything about horses or any of that kind of stuff, and so I've got hair down over my eyes, and you know, I've <laughs> got the skater look, and just didn't give a rip, and I walk through the door, and there's this John Wayne-style figure and he's really quiet, and he's this older, you know, gentleman put together, and he's, he just shakes my hand really hard, you know, he's got a good strong handshake, and introduces himself, and tells me to look him in the eye, and, and it was really kind of interesting, and I'm like, who's this guy, and it was really weird, <laughs> and then I kind of shut off, and wasn't really into the scene, and I wander back down his hallway, and there's a tack room, and it's full of pictures of him with his mules, and there's saddles, and there's bridles, and it has a smell to it. Yeah. And I think that was the day, I don't know what it was, but just my pupils dilated, and I was like, I love this. And something happened where he saw that I was back there messing around, and then I, um, you know, I'm getting on the saddles and goofing around and <laughs> pretending like I'm doing stuff, you know. And, and then I load up in the minivan with the parents, and we all head back to... Um, Sacramento and then he had told my mom or my dad and uh, I forget how it went down but he had 
said, you ought to have him come stay with me, you know, kind of a thing. Be. And then after that, I went and stayed, I think, a week with him. I can't remember exactly how it went now. I was pretty young, but, uh, and I was really into it and really liked it. And then from then on, I just wanted to do horses. And so I met, I just went through the phone book looking for like horse riding stables and stuff and I right. at that point we had moved um, to South Sacramento um, I was just getting into junior high and went to South Sacramento and we moved into the Elk Grove area and uh, which is just kind of south of Florin and it was in another um, subdivision kind of a newer subdivision and uh you know, I was pretty caged and wanted to be a cowboy and was wanting to do stuff. But uh, I started picking up um, National Geographics. Okay. And I found one that had Kurt Marcus photos of Nevada. Oh, yeah. And it's where he went out and followed these buckaroos. And that's where I first heard the term buckaroo. And right. This guy's sitting there and he's got a pistol on his hip and he's got his horse hobbled and he's making coffee out in the sagebrush and that was it. I was like, All right, you can just do this, you know? People was, can just yeah, absolutely. Can we just live like this still? So I was pretty hooked to that. And then I found Juna Light at Snowy River Ranch and she had a boarding facility out in Wilton, which is right outside of Elk Grove. And I went to her and I asked if I could trade writing lessons for cleaning stalls because I didn't yeah. have any money. And she's like, all right, you can come out on the bus and clean stalls and I'll give you an hour writing lesson. Right. And that's kind of the start of it all. And I think yeah. I was 13 or 14 when I started learning how to ride horses. And then yeah. it's just been ever since, you know, it's been, uh, she was dating a guy, Ed Machado at the time, who is a pretty extraordinary human. And he was born a hundred years too late, and he was this guy that just had cows kind of scattered all over California, and he had an old dog named Bud that was just, you know, and he had all... But what was neat about Ed was he had um, a firm understanding of the lore of California. So right. that early rancho days, the silver, the rawhide, the horsehair, and the, you know, the, the hackamore to the two-rein to the straight-up and the bridle... That's yeah. just how he operated every day. Yeah. And it was really neat because that was my first exposure to a cowboy, to like a cowboy. And so I got to see him just, he'd be twisting hair or braiding rawhide in a little shed out behind uh, his house. Yeah. And, you know, and it was kind of interesting because I was always kind of artistic and I liked doing artistic stuff, but Ed was really artistic and he could, he would just lay out a chunk of silver and push little marks into it and it turned out to be this beautiful head stall and... And I just got hooked to it, and so ever since I've been kind of chasing that life a little bit, you know. And absolutely, it's come in and in and out of, you know, more so. You know, I got married and had two kids, and and you know, you kind of put your cowboying days behind you a little bit and try to get more responsible and do different things and <laughs> take care of a family. But that, you know, that wild part of it, that I always really liked. You know, absolutely. the the freedom of just um, being out and and herding cattle I've been attracted to different things with horses but um essentially I got kind of into starting colts and problem horses early on and I went to Montana and then I um fell in with um Carlos Macias and I went up there he's got buckaroo gear okay um, that's right yeah. and him and I were raised in the same town together and we just both got the cowboy bug and and we have a real similar story we just got hooked to it and yeah. so we were best friends and through school and 
we went up to Montana. He was going to school there, and then I went up right. there and I started Colts for the Diamond R, which was um, they would pack people in for hunting and stuff. And right. So I got really excited about kind of getting around different courses and 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 was uh, where at in Montana was that? It was in Belgrade, which is right okay. outside of Bozeman. There. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, kind of got a little bit of of different horses underneath me, and that was kind of fun. And then um, was into the cow horses a little bit, worked for some cutting horse guys and rain cow horse guys, and really was a lot of fun to try to learn how to do that kind of stuff. But I always had this, I don't know what it was, just I wanted to be outside in big range and big open country. and Yeah. And it was just different. It was just, for some reason, that suited me better than, you know, riding in arenas. And those guys were incredible hands and taught me a ton and uh, they could do more with a horse. And it was really neat to see, you know, professional horse trainers who love horses and they're raised in that culture. They just get up every day and have an incredible work ethic and love their animals. And just, they've done the progression so many times that, you know, I was young and I wanted to do all these things with a horse. And they go, you know, they just had this beautiful way of building a horse. And right. so that was fun for me to see. and kind of think about you know longevity of a horse and and they knew that you know that sloppy stop was going to turn into a beautiful stop in a month or three months or six months you know right. and so it was just really neat to go through that process with them and see them do that and over and over again you know and right. so that that kind of gave me a a little bit of a drive to chase a little more of a performance style horse but I still had this Thing about herding cattle that just I couldn't get out of my head you know yeah. and so I like to do that and uh, this opportunity came along at the Gavilan Ranch and I went to Eastern Oregon and moved up there during the boom a real estate boom here in California and we had I met a guy I was leasing his barn starting Colts right and Gary McInerney he was a realtor and he explained to me that some of these um, some of this real estate's been sold like in the early 1900s to people back east and they never even came out and settled it and this was out in Harold out by Galt and that there's these there's just landlocked parcels in California of property and I'm like you know at that time I'm leasing the barn with Gary I'm like I forget how old I was but I had like 300 bucks in my account or something you know and I don't know how money worked at all yeah. and so he's like you ought to take a look at this and you can you know let's partner up and you can go find these deals and we can build some roads to them and open them up and maybe resell them and that sounded amazing to me so I tried it and sure enough I was able to get something bought and he helped me to just open it up and gain access to it and then right. it was right when the real estate market was kind of really moving and so we were just put it back on the market and sold it and that gave me a nest egg to go and buy a place in eastern Oregon and I'd always wanted to get out there where big ranches were at you know yeah. and yeah and I never what I never got on a buckaroo crew or I never you know I never did uh, a few of the things that I always wanted to do that I think would have made me even more well-rounded but um I got to get around those guys and they were just these really amazing people you know yeah. you get out there and you day work and do some stuff and they're they just live this life that's you know so different than I'm I was so caught up in the romance of it and there's just people out there that just love to get up and bump cows around and they just it's just <laughs> in them and if they're real quiet and they're gentle people and they just move out there and they'll ride horses that I wouldn't dare get on and they just go <laughs> aw shucks and 
just ride the hot. I mean, it's like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, sometimes he'll buck you off when he's just feeling kind of jittery. And I'm like, oh, no, he didn't. That was incredible. But, you know, they just get along with them. And, you know, the art of not picking on a horse was something I learned in, in Eastern Oregon because yeah. they were older horses and they were setting their ways. And, you know, sometimes you didn't ride them while you're hanging all summer and you had to go gather the mountains and you better just kind of. Better ease around them, get on them, and just leave them alone. And, right. and so there was something to be said about that, which was kind of neat too. But, that's, so that's neat. Yeah, kind of some is, interesting. That is quite a story. I bet I bet you there's some pretty cool adventures tucked in there where your experience was. I remember hearing or reading or watching a video you made a number of years ago about when you first saw Bruce Sandai for working horses and kind of a bit of the revelation around that for you. Where did that sort of fit into that? story uh so bruce antifer i think i was watching one of the videos that was out and i can't remember if it was susan sembers or somebody had done a like oh, a yeah, series yeah, and right. i remember seeing bruce out there in santa barbara and he's like look you can see the ocean in the backdrop and he was riding i think mooney or one of his really neat um older horses when he had um a lot of quarter horses at the time and that horse was just shaped up in a way that i hadn't seen you know, a really old kind of old timey looking, and because I was so kind of caught up in the romance of it, you get, you look at the books and you read a lot of the stories and you see a lot of the Ernie Morris style drawings sure. and you um, look at these really old paintings that were done, you know, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and the way those guys are holding their reins with their hand upside down and different than you see nowadays. And so, mm -hmm. when I saw Bruce Sanifer out horseback, I was like, oh, that's interesting because he seems to be chasing that thing that intrigued me which that which yeah. was that how how did this evolve how did the spade bit and how did they get such a reputation for being such incredible horsemen and how it yeah. was born here in california on the coast and you know what was that evolution and what i really liked about getting around bruce is he's very curious to how and why what what yeah. what's going on when you do this because a spade bit if anybody's ridden one they're terrible for leverage like they just aren't very good to ride if you have heavy hands because right. the horse just you know he can get a hold of it and if he's had enough he just bites a hold of it and leaves and you're just <laughs> I, I mean you can really get run away with like because there's so much surface area that you're not going to really you know, worth the snaffle bit and other bits that, you know, along the way you learn, they actually can inflict a little bit of pain and you can oh, yeah. kind of get w away with um, with getting their attention that way. But with a spade bit, there's really not a lot of pain involved at all. And even if you tried hard, they just kind of protect themselves and, you know, roll yeah. out. And so it's intrigued me because I, I didn't understand it. And when you look at a spade bit, it looks horrible and it looks scary and medieval. And you're like, how is people doing this? But you know, knowing that it was part of the California style of horsemanship, there must have been a reason for it. And so it just opened curiosity more than anything. And so yeah. I went on kind of a kind of a mission to try to understand it because I was raised around some neat bridal horse people, but they yeah. didn't really do a lot of spade bit stuff. And so, um, but they were all bridal horse people. Like they would get a horse you know, raining around really neat and really handy, but you didn't see the big tall spades that were early California. And, right. you know, granted you go, well, maybe there's a reason, maybe we evolved away from it, but then maybe 
it was an instrument that was pretty finely tuned and we didn't take time to really understand it and so that kind of opened up a lot of and that's where bruce has really filled in a lot of gaps for me because he just he's a really common sense kind of guy and he's you know he's a cowboy so he talks to you like you're you're you know like you're um you know there's a real common sense approach to it so he can explain that you know there's a reason this is happening and let's explore it and figure out what that is and then what's neat about bruce is even today little lights go on all the time and so he'll be like riding a certain way and he gives it he reminds me of the trainers that i worked for when i was a kid where you just uh give it time and ride with it in your hands for five years and you're going to learn something. All of a sudden you go, okay, I've been holding these reins for five years trying to understand this piece of equipment, and all of a sudden these little things just happen. And then you don't even know what it's like to not ride without a spade bit. And that's what's interesting is to see this evolution because I didn't see a lot of spade bits in California when I was growing up, and now you see a lot of people with them, and they're riding good horses with them. And, you know, there's mistakes along the way, and, and but because of the way, the way that bit's built... You can do a lot of um, a lot of mistakes, and a horse is going to go. Okay, we're fine. Like it's not yeah. it's not an issue. And so you're going to build some braces in your horse because you're <laughs> trying to pull them when you should be just working your seat and your balance. But exactly, you know. And I've done a lot of, of the things wrong. Like I mean, in in this exploration and this experimenting, I've I've messed plenty of things up, and I've pissed horses off, and I've had to apologize a lot. And uh, I think that that's true, regardless of what we're what we're doing. You know, I always, at least in my clinics and stuff, I tell people if if you're not making any mistakes, you're probably not growing or trying or exploring new things. And uh, I think you're right. The there is a res- renaissance in this in this style of riding and the pursuit of of better riding better horsemanship and uh, I, th- I think that's really cool that you see not only more spade bits being used but being used well people riding nice horses and and making nice horses yeah i think i think there's a lot to that and it's been a uh, a big progression of you know i'm i'm pretty late maturing in and like a border collie and so <laughs> a lot of it was ego driven early on and you just get older and tired and you know, you you can't get away with stuff um, that you used to be able to get, get away with when you were young and full of fire. And now I don't <laughs> want to do any of those things that are going to compromise me or my horse. And so sure. I'm finding ways to refine in a way that um, people aren't seeing me ride my horse. That's really what I hope to accomplish someday, where we all look like we're together and everything's moving as one. Yeah. In a way that um, people wonder what I'm doing or wonder, you know, how we're we're even communicating. And so exactly. I've seen people do that, and uh, it's really neat to watch. And it's something that's worth chasing, I think. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so right when I think I know something, I don't know anything at all. And so they'll, <laughs> they'll humble you right up. And, you know, back in, when I was younger and thought I could muscle a horse around in a hackamore it doesn't take very many times of trying to do that before those old you know horses in Oregon especially that are four or five years old they just strike that hackamore right off their face and run off and you're just <laughs> you're just hoping you're you're good with the Lord above and he wants to keep you around for a minute you know yeah exactly that's right <laughs> that they uh they'll figure those things out pretty quick yeah you just kind of give it uh 
and you got to give it a lot of respect, and that's what I've learned. What's just neat about um, watching people like Bruce Sandifer and um, it, a lot of people, you know, they have a a knack. They look like brawny, hard men, and they are. And that's what's interesting about this culture that I found is a city kid coming into this world of really hard people that are, you know, they've been shaped by the landscape around them. They've been, you know, they've had to build a lot of resilience. They've had a lot of suffering. They've seen a lot of things. And it stacks into somebody in a way that even though they're hardened up on the outside and you'd be afraid to approach them a lot of times, they're some of the softest people when it comes to animals and feeling the world around them, a lot of empathy. And yeah. and it's just these really simple one word, you know, or, or phrases that, you know, leave that horse alone. Don't do that. Just simple, like, quit picking on them. Quit, you know, there's all these little corrections that guide you along the way that when you look back at it, you go, wow, that, that person was had a really big old heart. And, you know, you'd put a big day in on a horse and, you know, some of these guys, you were doing a lot of work to make it right, you know, yeah. because that horse packed you the whole time and you know crawl out of places that were impossible if you were on foot and it's just these they do amazing things that make you um it's easy to take take them for granted but it they're is. really yeah. amazing yeah. with what they can do and i try to visit that often and realize that um they've done a lot for me especially for mental health you know in terms of just becoming the person that i am because they are such forgiving animals and absolutely and that's kind of shaped me up a way that yeah i kind of have to spend my whole life making it right you know because i've done enough to kind of <laughs> i've been on enough to go okay i i probably should spend the rest of my life trying to be really good to these beasts because i'm out there just running around like a wild man and the poor horses is putting up with me you know so there's a lot to that i think you touched on you know empathy and and forgiveness and and those sorts of things that those horses demonstrate and help us to take hold of better in in our relationships it's pretty amazing to think about so you're in eastern oregon and is that kind of when it opened up for you to come here to the the gavilan or yeah or? so i had, was starting colts and i was at my buddy jeremy's house and i was on a colt and i'm sitting there just talking to him I think I have my arms folded and we're just hanging out and this horse just grabbed his butt. I don't know what scared him, but he just jumped straight up in the air and then um, the way that he hit the ground, it was right in the corner of the arena and it just pile drove me right into the corner of the arena. And so I hit the wood and Ooh. everything, you know, everything just yeah. came really, and I, I don't even know what happened, but I remember running over to Jeremy telling him to grab my head and pull it out of my shoulders. He's like, no way. The noises you were making before you came up to me. And uh, at that point, I'm like, I didn't, I couldn't feel the, my fingertips for oh. quite a long time. So I did something pretty bad in my neck, sprained it pretty bad. And yeah. and I went to the chiropractor and they put me in this deal and they're pulling my head out, you know, because it was pretty smashed wow. into my neck. And so they're he's trying to pull me out and work me out right and he goes hey you gotta quit riding these horses you know i was like i don't know how to do anything else and he goes go talk to my brother up at the jail he's running the jail at the burns you know and <laughs> and so i go up there and i was like i need a job i got you know kids to feed and i i need to do something a little different until i can get healed up and yeah and so they had an interview going on and all these guys showed up and they were in their um cop uniforms you know they'd come from different places and they had their badges and they were looking sharp and here i am with like oil-stained wranglers and a you know elbow missing in one of my shirts and they're like 
and so the whole panel of, of deputies is up there, and they ask you, what, what can you bring to the sheriff's department? And I'm like, I don't really know what you guys do <laughs> at all. And, and so they're like, well, uh, if you were to get in a fight, and, and what would you do if you racked there in the jail and, and had to get into a fight or a, a defend yourself? And I was like, I'd probably be looking for a lot of help, you know. And, <laughs> and so they're, they're kind of giggling about it. And they said, well, um, uh, oh, and I said, well, I can tell you I can be on time every time. I'll, I'll come, I'm not going anywhere. I got a place here. I got mouths to feed and horses and dogs. I said, I'll be here yeah. whether I'm sick or not. You know, yeah. you can count on me. And so I went out and got in the car and, and uh, I said, I don't think I got that job. And so I'm driving home and I get this phone call and and it was Stacy, the jail commander. And he goes, I'm sorry to inform you, you got the job. <laughs> I said, oh, man. <laughs> so that was five years in the jail and that was an incredible time. You learned, I didn't, I didn't know anything about it, you know. And, yeah. And I learned a lot about people and, uh, you know, but working with a lot of problem horses and I've kind of been prone to that, you know. It seems like I, I can't just go in and do a normal job, apparently. i got to do, try to help something or think I'm helping something. I, I felt, to, sure made it worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so I ended up in there, and, and uh, it was interesting because, uh, you know, you just see a lot of people having hard a hard time, you know. And so I didn't come from a... a a lot of that in terms of I, I didn't know what was out there in the world I was pretty yeah. naive and so a yeah. lot of stuff that would come through the jail I just wasn't ready for it. I'm like what is happening and why are they here and wow. so it affected me and it was hard to wash off and so I'd go home kind of a little more quiet every time you know and yeah and it wasn't I don't know exactly what it was that affected me just knowing that there's that in the world and there's yeah. a lot of things going on that you just can't do anything about it is where, you know, or yeah. where I was at. And so it felt pretty helpless, but then you also, you know, you, you, you just can't wash it off. And so I started getting kind of like, kind of down, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. um, I found myself kind of wanting to get out of that spot. It was a great job and I worked for great people. And a lot of those inmates, the thing about working in Burns is it's a small town. And so, sure. you know, we, I might have to, you know, book a guy in that had some drinking problem and came in pretty, pretty tough acting and pretty wild and then the next day I'm following him around in the grocery store and we're shopping together you know and so you kind of interact differently than you would in probably a jail where you never saw those people outside but I knew I was going to see all these people and a lot of them I you know they worked with they're good cowboys and they just you know they had a lot of suffering and a lot of things going on that demons that they were trying to run from and so it was interesting to see it and go through it but um so I ran into Leslie Dorrance at a roping or something, I think. And I said, hey, Leslie, I'd love to get back to California. Um, I said that, uh, you know, because the kids were little at that time. And when you live in snowy country, as soon as you put the kids outside for a minute to go play in the snow, you just spend the rest of the day looking for their shoe <laughs> or, you know, something's come off or there's a sock. And it's like, this is kind of tough. Like, it'd be nice to be, just get the kids outside and not worry about them sticking to the ground or something, you know. And <laughs> It was pretty long winters there, and, and yeah. not too awful bad, but I just thought it would be neat to get back to California and get onto a ranch, and she yeah. put my name in the hat for this place. I'll be. And, um, yeah, it was really neat to, because um, I, I didn't know, I'd never run a ranch before, and but I'd been around a lot of guys and had a lot of friends that were incredible um, cattlemen and horsemen, and so I thought, 
you know, I had enough support systems right. to help me along. And Leslie and the Dorrances were incredible help. And, you know, so I came in and they were wanting to do holistic plant grazing. And right. I don't know if your audience is aware of what that is. But, um, well, just, just explain it a little bit for those listening that aren't, aren't aware. Yeah, so Leslie told me, you know, here's this ranch. It's um, uh, 11,000, I think it was 11,500 acres, 11,000 acres at the time. It's expanded a little bit since then. But she explained that the owners wanted to do holistic plant grazing, and I didn't really know what that was. And so I went down a rabbit hole and, and tried to learn all I could about it to prepare and see if it was something I could do. Or, And I found it really intriguing because it was this biologist, I think he's a biologist, named Alan Savory from Africa, who tried to figure out at the time uh, why the parks were overgrazed. And so they did a bunch of studies and determined that these elephants were the problem. And they were overgrazing and they were destroying the parks and they needed to reduce the animal numbers. And they reduced the animal numbers. Now, forget how many they reduced them by, but they, they went out and shot a bunch of elephants. And turned out things got worse, not That's better. Right. Yeah. And so that put him on a mission because he loved elephants and he didn't want to kill the elephants. But, you know, he did a bunch of peer-reviewed stuff to make that decision and all the science was behind it. Yeah. Come to find out that wasn't the solution. And so he spent the remainders of his life and still is today trying to figure out how and what was wrong there. And so what he has determined is it wasn't less animals, it was more animals but moved in a way that they're supposed to be moved because they got rid of the predators and they got rid of these large herds. And so these animals started to scatter out and just pick through the plants in a way that they just ate the candy. And so they were affecting their landscape differently than when they were moved around by pack hunting predators and um, hunting people that used to hunt these animals. They used to work together collectively and these animals stayed tightly bunched because it was a safety issue yeah and that tightly bunching um phenomenon or i guess you would say the, the mechanism to that is what actually builds healthy grasslands you yeah. um, that's how the buffalo move through the nations or the, the north america and that's how um a lot of the the big herds move through africa and most everywhere there is big herds your caribou in, in alaska yeah yeah they move in a way that's tightly bunched because they're safety in numbers, and that affects a landscape, and it is the symbiotic relationship with that landscape that they evolve together under that type of pressure. And so those animals would come through, and they would graze, and they would dung and urinate, and then they would move off the landscape, or pack-hunting predators would move them off, and they wouldn't return back to that until essentially the next year. Right. And so... It had to do with heavy impact followed by long periods of rest. Exactly. And that, um, that intrigued me um, because I, I like wild things. I like um, nature. I like trying to understand um, our place in it and how it, this world evolved to be the way it is. And so it's neat to see these grasses and the need for that grazing pressure um, it's neat to see that relationship and the way they wanted to manage this ranch was with holistic plant grazing, which meant we bunched the cattle together and we moved them in a way that mimics nature. And so 
most of the ranches in California are stalkers um, ranches. And what that means is because we're an annual grassland, that our grass shuts off in July, some places a lot earlier than that, depending on where you're at in California. And our annual grass shuts off. And so, like I was saying today, we'll go from 28% protein in some of this plant material and it'll drop to 5%. And for an order, in order for a cow to stay in pretty healthy body condition, she needs to have at least 7% right. protein to keep kind of going along. And so this landscape drops a lot of nutrition quickly. And the way that most of the beef industry has moved through California was to understand that phenomenon. And so what they would do is they would bring in young cattle and they'd scatter them onto a landscape, say, January. They're stocking ranches right now and have probably been stocked for about a month. And so they'll bring in a lot of young cattle, they stock the ranches, and then they pull those cattle off in July. Right. But they're not necessarily mobbing those cattle together tightly. And so right. those cattle hit the landscape and they scatter out and they just kind of eat the candy what's called the high bricks plants, anything with high sugar and high nutrient content. They've evolved to do that. So they go around, they smell out the candy plants, and they eat those plants the same way, the same time every year. And over time, that reduces the root structure of those plants, and those plants begin to disappear from the landscape. And so then you have an annual dominated grassland when, in fact, these hillsides used to have a lot of perennial grasses in them, right. as well as forbs. And so just the plant communities change with that pressure over time. Um, this ranch, we're trying to keep these robust native plant communities. And so by mobbing those cattle together and moving through this landscape, we found um, that this landscape responds uh, in a really interesting way. So when you allow it rest and you walk through it with a large herd of, of grazers, or at least cattle here, we found that it can do a lot of different things to stimulate plant growth. And so we see a lot of different native plants expressing where before, you know, years ago, you wouldn't find a purple needlegrass on this landscape. Wow. And now they're everywhere. And so yeah. it's a situation like the bridal horse where you can't remember what it was like before. And so <laughs> it's interesting to see this landscape change. But doing so, we've had just like the bridal horse journey, we've made a ton of mistakes and we've you know, we've pushed cows too far. We've done things where they're, you know, they're not thriving. And, you know, you, your landscape's responding in this incredible way, but your cattle aren't gaining weight. And so we, we're always calibrating that to try to find the sweet spot. And that's yeah. kind of been yeah. the journey. And, um, you know, when do we calve? How do we get on the most for cow development, calf development? How can she milk through a place that shuts off in grass and just hits a wall when that calf is needing that green right. all of a sudden we go dormant and that calf just stops growing all right. through the summer and so wow. it's this incredible little tiny window of opportunity for that cow to have a calf and then also heal up enough to rebreed right. and then keep that calf growing and that's really the tricky part that we're we're chasing and so yeah. um it's been interesting it's been an interesting and this ranch has some interesting challenges because it's a spring-fed ranch a lot of its surface water and so we you know, a lot of ranches are the same way. They're just, you know, water's the weak link. And so Absolutely. we're always trying to develop water to keep, to give us the ability to keep these cattle tightly bunched. Right. And then um, if the longer we can do that without dispersing the herd because they got to go get water somewhere else, or exactly. as long as we can keep in electric fences and keep them tightly bunched, this landscape responds incredibly. And so we're seeing a lot of interesting things happen. We brought in Point Blue Conservation Science, which is a, a third party 
um, science organization that helps us collect data on soil, on um, plant uh, distribution or, or plant species. And so they've done a, a really big inventory on birds. Um, and so we have some really neat data points uh, since 2017 that has helped us understand our ecological health. Right. And it's moving in a very positive direction, which awesome. is really exciting because, you know, the main goal for me is to put big herds back together and put horsemen and horse and, and you know, that pastoral way of life back into action right. in a large scale. Right. And I think we can do it in California. I think um, I think we can brand it in a way that the community loves it. They're using a lot of goats now for fire fuel reduction. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of need for grazing pressure in California. And if we can do it prescriptively and carefully to enhance the ecological function, um, essentially we can kind of change the narrative around yeah. ranching and cattle. Yeah. Um, the biggest threat um, to the wildlife in California is um, conversion of open space. And so if we can add value with a large herd of animals to encourage people to keep space open, even if you break it into ranchettes, 5, 10, 15 acres, you change the migration of wildlife and yeah. the way they move through the landscape. So keeping large intact landscapes um, that way is is going to be paramount. Uh, grasslands are essentially an endangered species, and so if we can keep it um, open and yeah. intact and well managed, yeah. um, we're going to not only enhance our communities um, with food, local food stuff, but sure. we're we're providing an ecological service, and Absolutely. so we're we're creating resilient communities and watersheds and food sheds, and we can do that at a local level that. Um, it would be really beautiful to see, you know, spay-bit horses just dressed to the nines, full regalia, all the things that are were born here in California yeah. through this tradition. It would be really neat to see people moving a large herd in that way. Um, and if you think about what that would do for, you know, eco or for agritourism, I mean, right. people would come... People would come from all over the world to see that herd of cattle get tipped into Monterey and work around the outside of the city and then fade back into the hills. And it could be an, a, really neat, um, a really neat way of managing vegetation for um, California because you're not making a lot of money on these ranches in California just because the cost of doing business is so high here. Yeah, And so we have to provide a service and so you know I shouldn't have to go into the national parks and pay to graze cattle that's the craziest thing I yeah can imagine it would be like somebody coming to my house and saying hey can I pay you to mow your yard right it's like that's a weird concept it's like can I can I help keep your yard beautiful it's like but because of the way that we've moved in an extractive way with the beef industry that yeah we've treated grass like it was something to be you know charged for right when in fact if managed correctly we're adding more plants to that community right and that's what the science is starting to flesh out now is if you can move in there with a herd of cattle into the state parks and 
you know, you start managing prescriptively and really carefully and putting the data on uh, paper to showcase that what you're doing is enhancing that, that landscape, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, essentially, there should be some funding available from, you know, Cal Fire and these people, they get, you know, funding from the state to come in and reduce vegetation. Right. Why can't we participate as a tool and be that? Exactly. And um, add value to our community. So these are things that I'm always daydreaming about and thinking about. And I see the future of California moving in that direction. There's some interesting barriers and interesting, you know, historical uh, things in place that kind of limit that uh, thought process or, or uh, yeah. you know, we have a narrative that we have to push back against and we have yeah. to, we have to change um, people's minds. And what that's meant for us is getting all of the scientists in the room. And so a lot of ranchers wouldn't open their doors to environmentalists and conservationists because they don't want to be um, told what to do. And yeah. they've been told what to do a lot. And a lot of those decisions have turned out to be wrong. Yeah. by the so-called you know people who make these rules sure and so we've opened the door and said come in we all need each other let's start to figure out how to work with each other and yeah. and if you get three or four biolo biologists in a room it's quite a debate that happens and all i have to do is figure out how to navigate through that discussion and try to make good decisions for the landscape yeah um because you know that same biologist that wants to protect um a pond to protect tiger salamanders. Another biologist says, if you don't reduce the vegetation next to that shoreline, those salamanders aren't going to migrate up in the grasslands. And so these, there's these interesting, you know, holistic views that um, the more you push out away from a landscape, the more you see these moving pieces are tied together. Right. And some people get really fixated on a certain exactly. one thing, yeah. and that yeah. has a tendency to have unintended consequences. And exactly. so, with holistic plan grazing. Alan Savory created this framework. How do we make a decision? And when we do make a decision, what are the possible um, downsides? And so everything before we make these, you know, we lay out our entire year. We know exactly where those cows are going to be, when they're going to be there. We plan for drought. We figure that we lay, uh, we, you know, we spend a couple days trying to get this entire plan down yeah. for not only the cattle, but we don't want to be in a riparian zone before the summer solstice because the wildlife are using that. Most of the riparian areas are where the wildlife do all of their nesting and all of their breeding. And so we stay out away from waterways if we can until after the summer solstice. And these types of things that we have to take into consideration, you know, where are the elk calving? Yeah. Where are, you know, where are the eagles nesting? We don't want to disrupt that. And so we try to look um, at a lot of different things and then bring people in the room who see the world different than I do. So I need the biologists. I need Kate to come in who has a really good understanding of you know, what the, what the animals in the area are doing at that time. Right. And she can, that's my partner, Kate, and she can give me incredible feedback to help with that decision making because I'm thinking about cows and I'm thinking about how to keep the cows alive. How do they get a drink? <laughs> what are they going to need to eat? Exactly. And then I can think about that if I have another set of information that says, if you do that, this is possibly what you're going to do. Right. And so then we lay out our yearly plan and then we just figure we're wrong. No matter what we're doing, it's wrong. And so we go through the process, we recalibrate every year and go, okay, this was wrong, this was right. These landscapes are incredible. They can take yeah. um, periodic, periodic disturbances. As long as you know that you did a thing and allow adequate rest and recovery, then you can, you know, these, these, um, these landscapes 
really thrive on disturbance. And so yes. if you leave a landscape alone, remove all of the action that ungulates create, and reduce all the human impacts, it becomes a pretty stale environment, um, especially in California because of introduced annual grasses that came from Europe and Asia. And it just chokes out a lot of the native flora and fauna. And so yeah. your sensitive species can't migrate and move through it. And so a good example is the serpentine grasslands in San Jose. Because of the night, um, I believe it's because of the exhaust of the cars, um, there was a lot of nitrogen falling on the grasslands. And so it was fueling really fast annual grass growth. And oh, so... Right. Uh, there was a big push to remove cattle grazing from the serpentine grasslands outside of San Jose, and so they removed them off. And as soon as they did that, they started to see less wildflowers. They started to see um, less checker spot butterflies. And pretty soon, that all just started to disappear, and it became this thatchy, um, invasive grass that right. just choked everything out. And then they brought these grazers back, the cattle came back in, and no sooner than they came in did all of that stuff return. And so it just kind of really showcased that we, we have to, we change this landscape, but we can do a lot to repair it with exactly. the same animals that potentially destroyed it. Right. You know, and it, it's that analogy of, you know, cattle are, a, a, they're just this incredible tool for disturbance. And if they're managed poorly, they can do an, a lot of damage to a landscape. But if they're managed, you know, carefully they can do they can add so much life to a landscape absolutely and it's that analogy about you know you, you could have your drunk uncle that fires up the lawnmower and leaves it idling in the front yard while he goes to the bar and he comes back on the, a couple hours later and there's not going to be much grass there you know and so you got to push that mower around you got to have somebody paying attention to what it's doing it's really not the lawnmower's fault that that happened you know and so that's kind of where we are with cows is a lot of people want to blame cattle for things that are actually simply management issues. Absolutely. And, and we, yeah. can, we can do a lot to change that. Yeah. Quite an interesting journey for you coming in, not having managed a place before. It, 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 quite a steep learning curve, I would imagine, similar to the horsemanship and the yeah. bridal horse tradition, that sort of thing. Uh, like you said before, it seems like, and I know for me it's the same, the more, the more you learn, the more you find out you don't know. And that sounds like it's been your journey too here, figuring all that stuff out and learning. And Yeah. And when you're green and you don't have preconceived notions, you don't know what you can't do. And so we've learned a lot from that, you know, because I haven't, I haven't been raised up in, in the ranching culture, essentially. You know, I, I didn't come from that. And so I didn't have, um, which, you know, a lot of my ranching friends, I definitely look back at and go, <laughs> they knew way better than that. You know, so there's information there that, they just know you don't do and I've made all those mistakes and so you know but I've also learned a lot and we've been able to kind of go over some interesting barriers that most ranchers wouldn't um, or couldn't afford to do or consider yeah and or consider and I work for an incredible um, bunch of people here and this family wants to figure this out and yeah. so they know that it's really difficult to do something different and so I get really frustrated and I start, you know, things start to collapse around me and I start getting frustrated and feeling like I'm failing. And they have the ability to stand me up and brush me off and say, you're going to figure it out. Keep yeah. working. Like it's, it's not failing because we're not trying, you know, yeah. it's yeah. failing because we're, you know, certain things are failing because we're just not, you know, 
taking into consideration certain things or we you know we're trying to do a lot with the landscape that people haven't really done a lot on so what i mean by that is we're in a mediterranean climate and it's a two percent of the world's land mass is in a mediterranean climate so we have these really interesting um, challenges that a lot of the friends I have in regenerative agriculture didn't really, they have steady rain throughout the year or they have different things that they can manage for. Sure. And so a lot of this style of management hasn't happened in California and so we're kind of trying to figure out how to do it on these annual grasslands which has been tricky and it's, um, it's we're going to figure it out and we're getting closer every year and you know we brought in lots of people to help us and advise us and we're always asking questions and yeah. you know that's yeah. what I learned early on in this is and you probably have too in the horse world is you learn by going in and you know getting next to somebody that you think has a good understanding of it yeah and then you spend a lot of time sorting through a lot of that stuff because there's a lot of people who come into your life with stuff that sounds really good um, but those people may not have to make um, the type of returns or they don't have to have the kind of results that you need to to keep moving. And so sure. there's some important things to that. Um, I've had to suss out over time and go, wait a minute, who's who's just giving me really good advice but doesn't have any skin in the game? You know, And there's a lot of that where you're like, uh, thank you. I'll take that in consideration. Right. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be the one holding the bag here. So there's some interesting, uh, it's been an interesting thing to navigate in terms of building your um your quorum, so to speak, your your people that you can rely on and call in a in a bind, and yeah. and I try to be that for people um, by sharing my wrecks and saying this is what happened to me, and you know, I'll get a call, and someone's panicking, they got something happening with a water issue, and I'm going, these are the water issues I've found, and yeah, so I can share a lot of that quickly to hopefully help somebody, yeah, and um, because <laughs> might, we're all you trying might be to... hearing from me, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm here for it. I will share my wrecks because I've I've gone to a lot of these grazing conferences and there's a lot of people that stand up at the podium and they're like, look what we're doing, we're amazing, and I'm like, that's awesome that you're doing that, but then you hear another conversation, you know, at the at the at the lunch table and it's right. like, oh man, I this happened to me and this happened to me. And I'm like, I want to hear those stories because <laughs> that's, that's what I'm running into. Yeah, you know? that's, that's real life. That sounded pretty beautiful up there the way you were explaining <laughs> it, but it, it, nobody wants to see how the sausage is made, you know? And so it's a lot of, a lot of hard work, a lot of stress and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of adapting really quickly to situations that fall apart really quickly. You know, and this weather changes quickly. We go into droughts. We have a lot of things we have to really take into consideration and then also know that we're, um, we're, we're gaining traction. You know, when I want to give up and think that I can go back to the status quo and just stalk some cows in here and be perfectly happy, mm-hmm. we look at the data and it says, look at the plant communities, look at the wildlife, look at that we, you know, my understanding we have the largest yellow-billed magpie population in the world here. Yeah. We have condors here. We That's have amazing. things that are coming here um, to participate in this mob style grazing or this yeah. tightly bunched herd of cattle that are creating opportunity for all the wildlife around them which is uh to me is exciting but you know also what's that worth you know and how do we capitalize on it in a way that continues to put energy flow in the form of dollars into this landscape and so sure. that's always the challenge is how to convert this it's like that's great that a condor is here but what is a condor worth you know condors aren't you know nobody seems to 
want me to manage for condors, you know? Right, so right. it's like, what's that look like? You know? <laughs> so, you know, we have a feral pig population that, you know, does a lot of damage. They're, you know, they're invasive. And so, you know, we can do a lot to reduce that population and use them for fodder for the attracting condors. And so, you know, if we can create stations like that where we're not only trying to reduce and remove an invasive species, but also bring a very rare bird. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a win-win. I think, you know, Kate would explain to me that, you know, I used to take all, anything that would die here, we'd take to a boneyard and it was off in the brush and you didn't want to, you know, it all just went away. And so you took it out back and you, you, you know, if you have a, a calf, a stillborn calf or something. Yeah. You know, and she brought to my attention, she goes, what if you put that in open grasslands, you know, and me, I'm like, I don't want to have to drive by and see that, you know. Sure. But by doing that, all of a sudden, we removed the ambush situation. So if I put that carcass in a brush pile somewhere, in a hole somewhere, that condor couldn't come feed on it because it was surrounded by brush, and it, a condor takes a lot to get in the air. Right. And right. so her idea was leave it out where they can get to it and they're not going to be preyed on by predators and yeah. ambushed. And yeah. that meant I had to look at it. Yeah. That was hard to stomach. And so, <laughs> but then all of a sudden the condors start showing up and I'm like, look how beautiful that is. And then also, so there's this weird thing in me going, ah, I don't like seeing that, but also it's beautiful. So there's this weird yeah. tension that uh, yeah. we're doing the right thing, but also, um, you know, that's a totally different way of life and, and, and way of thinking about it. But yeah. it's, it's produced some interesting things. And then, um, you know, things like that, like our yellow-billed magpies, they come and they follow that cow herd. We lay down a bunch of grass and they poop and pee and they move to the next paddock at 10 acres in 24 hours. Well, that left this incredible, you know, opportunity for magpies to go in and flip patties. And, yeah. you know, we don't exactly. deworm these cattle. We don't put any insecticides in them. And so that allows the bugs to go into the manure. There isn't a residual in that manure. And so our dung beetles have shown up. Nice. A lot of the insects have come into those patties. And yeah. when they become so full of life that all of a sudden it's a feed resource for the birds, it becomes this incredible um, sort of, you know, follow the herd with all of this life. And it's yeah. really interesting to watch. And you know, and I've had to push back against things that I thought the industry demanded, which, you know, like insecticides. And sure. as long as we're moving these cattle onto fresh feed all the time, you know, they can handle a certain parasite load. They're designed to do that. And if we continue to stand them up with insecticides, maybe they won't have that type of resiliency. That's so right. essentially we've closed the herd's genetics and we just keep all the bulls here and we put them back into the herd. And what that does is streamlines our phenotype. So it adjusts are heard to fit this landscape very right. quickly. Right. We may bring in some outside genetics. We've done it since 2015, so we'll probably have to do something different and bring in some genetics the more we learn. Yeah. But our cattle have adjusted really well to this environment. That because is really of that. interesting. Yeah, yeah, so it's been interesting. And it's, they're smaller framed. You know, you're going to have a 1,000-pound cow maybe. But what we're finding is when we send them off to that second producer and they feed those cattle and they do, they baby those cattle and they put them on really good easy country or irrigated inputs oh boy yeah they just stack on the beef which has been really interesting because we don't really run that experiment here this is a a headwaters ranch there's no irrigated ground what they what they have is what they get and so when they move from the grasslands once the annual grass is shut off they start moving in more of a browser and they start to work the brush 
they start to eat um, you know new shoots off the brush and we try to put them down in the places where they have more selection and you know a cow can maintain fairly well through that if, yeah. as long as we're moving her and and continue to give her something different to put her lips on she seems exactly. to be holed up pretty good so yeah. um, but in order to get hay up here it's so expensive and most truck drivers won't want to drive the road to get up here. You drove it today. No. And yeah, I can, I can see that. We've had truck drivers get out with tears in their eyes going, what is this place? And I'm going, I know, it's, it's kind of wild. And so, you know, you can usually get a truck driver to do it once or twice, and then they're going, oh, actually, I have to, yeah, I'm not going to be able to make it. Uh, shoot, really wish I could help you. you know? yeah. So I've learned that over time is, uh, you know, essentially this has to be a very, a very bare bones input ranch. And yeah. so, you know, what's that look like for us? That's kind of what we've been trying to explore. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that kind of fits with what you're trying to do. Keep the inputs low, get these cattle to where they're adjusted to the climate and the feed and, and yeah. everything that's that goes into it and then at the same time I like how you you bring out you know the wildlife and the ecology and stuff that's going on because for for a long time you know we haven't seen that bigger picture yeah. I think and uh, understood how all these moving parts work together and it, it again we go back to the horses and it's like you start studying the way a horse works the biomechanics and the way they move and the way they're they're, they're put together and, and then you start studying how the spade bit works or the hackmore works and the yeah. balance and the signal and, and it's it's like you start stepping back and looking at, at the bigger picture and again you're sort of like wow I didn't know what I didn't know yeah and you just keep going with that but it's it's exciting to me and I've been I've been really really interested in trying to understand these things more too over the last few years so uh, it's it's uh, it's awesome to sit down with you and hear Kind of how that's been going and a little bit of a glimpse of what you see in the future so you you mentioned you know the idea of seeing these grasslands restored and seeing these big herds of cattle and and people riding spade bit horses and so if if you could sum it up what would you say your long-term vision is here what are, what are you trying to accomplish what do you think your mission is you know, I, I toss it around a lot, but <clears throat> like with what Bruce is doing, he's he's set up to do some really neat introductory things to get people introduced to this style of horsemanship. And, right. And I'd always thought it would be neat to gather talent like that and create some kind of an institute where people can just come out of town and they could live in the city, essentially, and they could come out and they could participate in this communal thing that we yearn for which yeah. is you know we want to you know for me anyway the, the horses bring us all together and so we we create yeah. these cultures <clears throat> and i like a horse culture and california is a you know it it happened when the spaniards hit the coast and they exploited you know the indigenous populations for labor but there was this beautiful fusion that happened through that traumatic event that you know my native friends are glad to have horses back in their lives. And, and if you think about what, what that means, um, there was a really neat fusion between this, you know, colonial thing that just kind of, and then these indigenous people that just had such a tender way of moving with animals and doing things. And it's interesting to think how that fused here and became this really beautiful way of 
of indigenous horsemanship for the California coast. And so thinking about how to preserve that and pull the good things from it. Yeah. And, and that to me is really special. You know, I'm always fascinated by the ability of people to handle large herds of cattle with a horse and, and really difficult terrain. And what's neat about thinking about how the life must have looked, you know, right. you read these stories about people would get in the saddle at daylight and they wouldn't step off until dark. And what did that look like to preserve a horse that long while being on them? And so yeah. people don't put those kind of hours on horses anymore. And, and when you start to dissect the equipment of a spade bit, it's designed to be held for a very long time, very easily by a horse. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, which is interesting, like in a hackamore, um, you have to progress out of that hackamore because when you do put long days in a hackamore, um, tension starts to build in that horse because they can't yawn, they can't move their jaw real smoothly because everything's kind of confined into that bozelle. And so um, I think it was Gary Miller, somebody was telling me that when they, I remember when I was in Eastern Oregon, when they would go to water, they would drop that hackamore and let their horses yawn and blink and get all the tension yeah. out of the pole. and. Yeah. So there's these interesting ways of preserving them in that hackamore, but the idea was to move out of that to a spade bit so they could Progress. essentially move loosely in the pole. And I don't know how accurate that all is, but it makes sense to me, and I think it's worth exploring. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've tried to put long days in with, with the spade bit, and I've found that they do really well with it. And, and if you're riding with a signal and your seat and not pulling on a horse, they can yeah. stay really, really light. Yeah. And so you'll get the same horse tomorrow that you got on, you know, and I've learned a lot of different ways, the pressure and release and, you know, you were, you know, you'd knock them off your hands or you'd, you know, lots of different ways to get a horse quote unquote soft. But this way seems to be the most sustainable way yeah. to just let a horse be soft and the balance of those, that equipment, they just over time fall into that neutral place where they're they move naturally in that way and you're yeah. not asking for anything. It's the equipment that's just kind of there with them. Exactly. And so it's not the pull of the hands that's shaping the horse. It's actually the balance of your seat and the balance of the equipment that all of a sudden yeah. that horse is able to just kind of float around and be in that, yeah. that outfit, so to speak all day. It'd be, I, I kind of think about it like if you were hiking in a tuxedo versus uh real good gear and hiking boots and things that expand with you and breathe with you you know right. it's kind of the same you wouldn't want to be in a wool outfit or something that just was restrictive and so it seems yeah. to me like this type of equipment for long pastoralist you know style riding where you're yeah. following cows or you know because that you never ride on really good ground when you're outside on a ranch and so that horse has to be able to pick its foot up and decide where it's going to put it yeah and yeah. A lot of these things you can will give you the ability to put a horse's foot where you want it, um, but this equipment has, for some reason, seems to free them up where they get to make decisions better. Yeah. And you 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 make a suggestion with the equipment, the hackamore, change the balance, and then you wait for them to be able and comfortable to make that move. So if they're going to sweep into a gate, you ask for the that move, and they give it to you when it's when they get their foot in the ground and they can make that move. Yeah, it's not a distraction because I'm pulling on their face, so they load up because they feel the pull, and then they have to make the move. It can be really snappy and it looks real fluid, but there's that little sweet spot where you you're asking for that face. It yeah. takes their attention away from their feet just enough where 
you might see some slippage or you might see some some different um, expressions that I don't seem to to see with this type of equipment. They seem to be able to shape themselves up and move a little with a little more confidence. Yeah. I think a lot of that is... I probably went off crest. What was your question? <laughs> well, I, I like this track too, though. You're going to find you know, I just wind around. Balance, you know, and and suppleness with with movement. And the way I think the hackamore develops that at the start, and then, of course, the spade carries that on, It's it just helps them be in a, a more fluid state of mobility and balance. Yeah. And so, like you say, you might offer them a signal and there's a moment or two there where they're positioning or they're getting you know they're they're with you already there there's yeah. there's that synchronicity of movement and thought and and but you're not pulling on them and so they can move with their with that suppleness and with balance uh that is completely different than if you're just pulling them around and and positioning them yourself so to speak yeah I, it, I i know what you're trying i think i know what you're trying to say it's it is it feels like a more confident yeah. um committed move than something that's moving because you told it to you know yeah. i asked it and then you know when it's right they make them they're not not wanting to make that move they're just waiting till they're loaded and ready to go and then yeah. they go and yeah. so that's it's kind of interesting to me and granted my horses aren't you know, stopping on dimes or turning around real hard or anything, but they're doing all the things I need them to do with enough confidence that I can get the job done and feel safe and they're yeah. safe and they're yeah. they're going to be the same horse in the morning as they or that night as yeah. they were in the morning. And so, exactly. to me, that's kind of important. And I've made other horses. You know, I've made hard horses at the end of the day, and I've, you know, they're just numb and their eyes are tight. You know, everything about them because you're pulling them or you're kicking them or you're asking them to do something yeah. too much. Yeah. And, being able to keep a horse fluid throughout the day is fascinating to me in a way that they, you know, they're feeling just as fresh as they did when you got on them. And that's yeah. something I'm chasing. So That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So in the long run, it sounds like in addition to helping change this landscape and, and raise good good cattle and, and make a profit, make it viable, you also want to share this lifestyle with people who want or need to understand all of it better. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been really fun. And and kind of back to your question of what the big picture is. I just see us, you know, it'd be neat to figure out ways to pull people from the community into this life because I was raised in town. And so I have this desire to want to be out in big places. And I think we as humans need to be out, you know, and and feel, you know, nature a little bit. And this is a neat way to do that. But also, to provide your community. Imagine seeing a large herd of cattle come into your town or around your town that's, you know, it just goes right down through town. It's weaving between Teslas and in front of the shoe shop and you're taking it up to go somewhere else to reduce the vegetation. Right. And while that's happening, there's a camp being set up. You know, there's there's a camp cook who's starting to cook for the crew. And we all show up and we unsaddle and people driving their kids from soccer stop in and they pull up some coffee and we talk about the herd. That's their herd. Yeah. They're participating in it. They're going to eat that animal eventually. Yeah. A cobbler's going to take the leather off that animal and make shoes. There's this neat thing that can be really local that Community. you don't see anymore. Yeah. There's no tanneries around. Nobody's doing that anymore. Yeah. And so those types of things I'd love to see get air back into them. You yeah. know, that you see these um, little starts happening here and there of people yeah. trying to yeah. pull that together and and I, I would love to see the future be that, where it's like 
all the children in school understand the ecological role of these grazing animals. It's not removed. It's very transparent. You're going to see a cow die and be on the side of the road, and they're just going to be condors eating that. That's the way that the world works. And if you ever watch any wildlife film, it's not a story of life. It's also a story of death that yeah. creates all that. And so it's this thing that, you know, we take an animal to feed ourselves, and an animal feeds this landscape. Because we removed all of the tule elk in this country. You know, we shot it all out, and we, you know, trophy hunted it all out. And then all of a sudden, you know, at one time, after they were killed off, they did a most of them were killed off. They did an inventory of like 100,000 tule elk moving up and down the coast. And so imagine what it used to look like here when yeah. those ungulates were managing these grasslands and, yeah. you know, indigenous people were setting fires. And, you know, you talk, you read the early books about what it looked like when they sailed into Mont Monterey Bay. There was smoke all the time, everywhere. And mm -hmm. so the indigenous people here understood that this is a fire ecology. They created that fire ecology. And so they knew how to move fire around in a way that we no longer do, which kept this a park-like setting. And so those early, you know, journal entries from the Padres and stuff talked about how they could lope a horse through these forests and exactly. it was clear and it yeah. was yeah. well-maintained. And so we can do that again and we can do it with a fusion of this thing that caused the problem, you know. And so right. we can be part of the solution and... Um, act in a way that helps restore balance and that's for me the big picture i would love to see that happen again yeah whatever that looks like you yeah. know and i think big herds with this california fusion of horsemanship it would be a beautiful um display i think it would be a neat way to move through the world in a kind of a campo style where people get used to seeing that you know and yeah. then they bring their kid out and you know you're pulling kids out of school and saying hey you get to go on the wagon that's part of the deal you know you got to go <laughs> maintain this communal herd yeah. and you're yeah. going to go graze state parks you're going to graze the bar ditches where they're spraying weed killer that doesn't exactly. need to happen that need you to can happen. drift a herd of cows down there that just makes it beautiful and then it reduces the mustard and all of a sudden you see you know wildflowers all up and down the bar ditches yeah. and it reduces the weeds and it, it i just see it being something that could happen if we just decided yeah. That's how we want to move through the world, you know, yeah. and I think we can. So. That is so cool. That's a pretty cool vision, Jeff. <laughs> yes. And I, I hear you. Um, and I think it, it is changing. I mean, I think we're, I think we're seeing slow uh, but sure changes in the way people are thinking about these things. And, and, I mean, whether that's, you know, sheep grazing through the vineyards or I met a guy last week in Cheyenne that runs sheep on uh, solar panel fields, you yeah. know, grazing underneath the solar panels and just helping – helping these companies and businesses and governments understand the basically the holistic benefit of this you know that it yeah. is and I love how you bring out the community side of it we're we're pretty interested too in what we hope to be able to do in the future to bring people along with our background in education and horsemanship and that sort of thing to to have the opportunity for people to come and join us and 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 learn about what what we're doing and, yeah, and how it all works together but uh uh, Jeff, I think that you and I could probably talk for two or three days about <laughs> yeah. this stuff, but we better get wrapped up here. I sure appreciate you taking the time and, um, yeah, just being able to visit out here with you guys and, and see the place. Um, you will be hearing from me in the yeah. future. <laughs> so. Well, thanks. That was my first podcast. It kind of went all over the map, but no, I think that's just it was the way awesome. it is. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Life in the Saddle podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share and leave a five-star rating or review. Remember, you can find us on social media or our website, truewesthorsemanship.com.